0: This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day, we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.
1: As Lisa and I were just discussing, you know, as it relates to the pandemic, it's kind of on a tale of two cities on on the one one hand, you've got uh, surging cases, uh, but on the other hand, you've got vaccines coming to the market in increasing uh, quantities. Uh, So we have to play those two off one another. Let's get the latest on all things as it relates to the pandemic. We do that with Dr. Ian Lustbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the NYU Langone Medical Center, joining us on the phone from New York. Uh, Dr. Lustbader, thanks once again so much for joining us. I wonder if you can just give us a sense As it relates to the virus and the cases we're seeing right now, um, is it manageable in the New York City or the greater metro health system? Are we going to do a better job this time than perhaps we did back in March and April when we were just blindsided?
2: Yeah, I think we've learned a lot. And happy Friday, uh, Lisa and Paul. Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, New York definitely is is really now in sort of the lower third of new cases compared to... To, uh, nationally. And I think a lot of that is based on, on the very rough March and April w- we had where really the system was stretched to its max. L- literally every bed uh, plus uh, was uh, assigned to COVID patients in all of the major medical centers. Uh, auditoriums were used, hallways were used. Uh, uh, you know, Tents were set up as we remember, uh, even Mount Sinai in, in Central Park. So we really were stressed at that point I think a number of New Yorkers have antibodies. They may have lost them along the way. But I believe a part of the reason New York is at this point in terms of new cases at the lower third nationally, unfortunately, uh, states like, you know, Tennessee, California, really still have, uh, you know, Wisconsin still have um, a huge number of new cases coming. Part of that probably due to the uh, Thanksgiving a bump. You know, we knew families were getting together, kids were coming back from college. So we sort of expected, uh, you know, a 10-day period out from Thanksgiving when there really would be a bump in cases. But New York so far has been faring uh, pretty well. There's
0: a lot to unpack here. I've got to say, just you flicking at those tents in Central Park reminds me of some pretty dark days in New York City. I remember running past those and thinking, is this The United States of America. I am wondering though, is there an inference that we can make about the hospitalization numbers being much lower now than they used to be? Is it just that more people are getting tested? So we're getting more positives? Or is the actual care for people who are diagnosed much better with the knowledge that we've developed?
2: Lisa, good question. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, We certainly are treating patients differently. Uh, Originally, we had a very low threshold for intubating patients, putting them in the ICU. Um, uh, A lot of the uh, critical care specialists now watch patients um, who may be sick with COVID. Uh, Not everyone as their blood oxygen, the so-called saturation drops, you know, into 90 or even below 90. If patients are comfortable, they're often just observed closely. They're not put on breathing machines. And there was a certain risk and morbidity associated with that. There's also a much lower threshold to start steroids early. We've learned about that. Uh, You know, remdesivir, there's been a lot of, you know, pros and cons, but uh, uh, we've sort of refined kind of how those ill patients are treated, including blood thinners. So I think our mortality is going down. The total number of cases is going up. And you're right, part of that is that we're testing more people uh, much more frequently. So we're often getting people with really mild cases. They may have nasal congestion, cough or cold. They get a little panicky. Oh, my gosh, my, my nasal swab was positive. What should I do? Unfortunately, a year later, we don't have anything like Tamiflu for them. Although there are a number of physicians, it's interesting, that have reported on ivermectin and a couple of other, uh, not to get too controversial, uh, uh, medications that may be very helpful. So that's worth looking into. But I think that combination of, um, uh, of more patients being managed at home uh, and, and less intubated is giving us some better numbers.
1: Dr. Lesbeth, whenever we talk to frontline workers like you, I always want to get a sense of how are your people doing? How are the people at NYU Langone Medical Center? It's one of the region's largest. It's, it's just a world-class facility. But how are the people doing in the ER and in the, in the wards that really have to, to deal with this?
2: you know i think it's an amazing staff and everyone is very positive and energetic you know we're going on almost a year and i think there is a lot of fatigue from patients and staff um you know patients i think are much uh, they're they're emotionally drained uh they've been told uh to you know be very careful for going on a year now. Uh they miss families, often family events are you know, were are not attended. And so I think there's a real psychologic toll and I think that's true to some degree. You know, there's mask fatigue. I mean, literally every day when you're in the hospital. And in the private offices too, you put on goggles, you put on an N ninety five mask. It takes a toll on everyone along the way. But I think there's a positive you know, attitude. The staff is great. We started getting vaccines this week uh, for frontline workers. I'm getting my vaccine Monday. So I think we are seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, And hopefully, you know, we do think you get some immunity uh, within, you know, a week or two, not complete immunity, that 95% um, efficacy is really after two shots, the second shot, you know, in three to four weeks, same for the Moderna vaccine that just got approved. So uh, you can't be reckless, but I think people will feel a little better psychologically.
0: When will someone like myself be able to get the vaccine?
2: I think really within the next couple of months. You know, we are doing the uh, frontline healthcare workers. It's really amazing in in December. Um, certainly in this area, North, Northwell colleagues have already been getting their vaccines, mainly hospital workers, and then that gets pushed out to the private practices. Now, now that may take certainly another few weeks. Same at NYU. We've already been giving over the last few days the, uh, you know, ICU staff, ER staff, and so forth. Doctors and nurses uh, have gotten it. And then the uh, practices over next week will start to get that as well. Not mandatory. You know, they're not making everyone take it, ironically, unlike the flu shot, where you have to take it in order to see patients. Uh, It is voluntary. But I think most staff is enthused. All the people I know who've taken the vaccine, minimal side effects, a little ache at the site, kind of like the flu shot low grade fever, none of the allergic reactions i 've i 've heard about that we 've seen just a couple of sporadic cases um, you know outside of this area. Uh, and I think for regular patients, and my patients like you, Lisa, are saying, hey, when can I get it? Um, uh, NYU does plan uh, to give it out to our, our patients, uh, you know, in the next uh, couple of months as more shipments come in. Which vaccine? We'll have to see. Moderna was just approved. Those are two shots. J&J is one shot, which makes it a lot more convenient. Uh, that has yet to be approved. Uh, and then we think the local pharmacies, CVS, Walgreens, et cetera, so you should be vaccinated, I think, within eight weeks, hopefully. You know, we're getting it out to uh, elderly and, and nursing homes. And I really think by next summer we will have a fairly normal-looking uh, country, maybe not economically due to the real damage that's occurred. But in terms of behavior, I think people will will get back to a pretty normal life by you know, spring and early summer is my guesstimate at this point.
0: Paul, I have to say, that was probably the most self-serving question that's ever been asked <laughs> yeah. on Bloomberg Radio, and it should have like a little disclaimer being but, like, but this is our personal desire.
2: And everyone is asking that question. Same question, that's right. It? So, Dr. Lushbed, I've answer, actually... We, we don't really, we can't say yet... You know, you are alphabetic or you're a certain age, you're going to get it. All of those details really are going to be worked out. And I think but but the time frame is somewhere we think in the next eight to 10 weeks will will be very likely. But, you know, how that's going to be done, it's really a massive vaccination. We haven't done this um you know, in, in a very long time. So this is really a little bit of uncharted territory. Uh, the good news is, look, it's not an emergency. And again, most people who get this are going to be fine. But we do certainly want to get up to herd immunity as soon as possible. And, and I think that will happen in the next few months. Uh, Dr. Lusbader I've been reading some uh, some stories
1: recently, some news stories that perhaps one dose of the Pfizer and potentially the Moderna might be enough, and that might allow certain people, or that might allow a quicker rollout, since you wouldn't have to bring use another dose for the same patient. What is your thoughts on that? What, what, what do you know?
2: You know, there's no question some antibodies are formed after one dose. Again, that mRNA gets in your cells, uh, makes that viral protein, that spike protein, which seems to be You know, the most antigenic, your body then forms antibodies to that over the course of, you know, days to weeks. And then when the virus, if you see the virus, you already have antibodies to it. So it should make it a much more um, rapid response. Optimally, the data so far really is those two shots. And many vaccines are like that shingles vaccine, pneumonia. You know, a number of vaccines really require two shots to get an optimal antibody response. It is my belief that the smart thing based on the data at this point would be to get the two shots. I think most healthcare providers are planning to get two shots. Um, But look, certainly people will begin to be protected even after one shot. I don't think we're going to have to fight over vaccine numbers. We really have a number of vaccine makers that over the next few weeks and months are going to be coming available. So I don't think we have to worry about rationing um, vaccine at this point, Uh, but I do think we need to focus on the most vulnerable, you know, population, again, the elderly and so forth.
1: Dr. Ian Lusbader, thank you so much once again for joining us. We always appreciate your perspective and your knowledge uh, and the way you can kind of get across some of this uh, difficult science here. Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the NYU Langone Medical Center, joining us on the phone from New York City. Now, that that eight-week number is, is something that jumped out at me
0: encouraging, right? That would be kind of exciting to get it pretty soon and then get on a plane and go on vacation. Not that that's where my (laughs) mind is right now, but my God, palm trees, the gentle roll of the waves. So, I mean,
1: the scientists have just done an outstanding job. Now it's up to the supply chain folks, I guess that's the way I'm looking at it. One of the clear signs of the economic harm being done to America. In general, but certainly in the greater New York area, is the empty storefront. And that is obviously reflective of businesses that have gone out of business. And that's obviously uh, challenging for those businesses and challenging for the landlords for those buildings in which those businesses reside. And Bloomberg Business Week has a great article on that. Joel Weber, editor for Bloomberg Business Week, joins us here uh, from Remote Access from Brooklyn. Devin Leonard, projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg Business Week, also joins us on the phone from New York City. And Joel, this is a big story. The retail story and the landlord and the real estate story all rolled into one in New York.
3: Yeah, it, it really focuses on on Midtown Manhattan, and that also represents you know Midtown districts throughout the country, if not world. And Devin's story really centers on on a, a fascinating uh, character, A. B. Rosen, who in the commercial real estate world is actually a, a, a really big name. The reason that he's especially relevant to New York right now is that he's actually in the process of, of uh, doing a really extensive renovation of the Chrysler Building, and of all the things that you could be doing in the middle of a pandemic, you know, <laughs> doing a you know gigantic <laughs> renovation of an uh, iconic building that um, commercial tenants are probably looking at but maybe not um, uh, biting on right now is, is probably not one of them. Um, and, and that was why we wanted to talk to him because you know this has serious implications for the economy as well as uh, cities, right like New yeah. York is is really in in the jaws of something right now and somebody like a B can kind of illuminate you know what it's like to be a developer and all of this. Oh. So, so Devin, what did you learn from talking with him?
4: Oh well, all, all kinds of things, but but I think the, the biggest thing was just, you know, getting him to take me up into the Chrysler Building because it was fascinating to see what he's going to do. You know, it's his his it's, you know two hundred uh, you know two hundred million dollar plan to 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 renovate this sort of historic building, but there was there was nobody there. Uh, you know, there was I mean the you know the lobby was empty. You know, they were you know his publicist was commenting he couldn't believe it was like a Sunday morning, and meanwhile it's like a Wednesday afternoon <laughs> at about wow. you know five o'clock, and yep. and we ran into one tenant. And he was leaving, and it was—it was just, uh, you know, it was just—it was—it was, it was just—it was kind of a, an amazing meal. You, know, you know, I was just there on my tape recorder, on, but I was just like, boy, this is it. This is the opening of the story because, you know, I—I don't know any other way to, to, you know, to describe to you know well, describe what's going on right now. So,
0: Devin, I was struck by the sort of trying to seem optimistic on the front and then underneath having true anxiety. And when we were first talking about this idea that that A.B. would have a really good view on this, well, he wants to also portray things in a certain way, and one of the best parts of the story was him haggling with this guy and saying, hey, if you leave, trust me, the line to take this space will be pretty (laughs) long. And then the guy says, I hope so, And and then A.B. says, don't leave, pay the high rent, come on. How much fear is there, Devin?
4: Well, I think it depends who you are. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a, there's a certain amount of you know degree of fear for all of these guys. I mean, even you know you know they're they really big names, and and that's why you saw a lot of them calling tenants, uh, you, you know, in the fall in the fall and saying, hey, you got to bring you got to bring your people back uh, because they're worried that the longer the longer people stay out, the more people are going to get used to working at home. You know, the less demand there's there's going to be you know for you know for their space and, and, and things like that. So. So, so, so the longer the longer this goes on, it just sort of you know potentially devalues the values their buildings. I, you know, on the other hand, you know, people like S. L. Green, who have you know one Vanderbilt, you know the newest the newest skyscraper in Midtown. People like you know A. B. Rosen, they're they're in a much better position than than people with you know class B buildings, you know, in tenants so they're going out of business. But but even so, you know you know you know imagine if you are you know you just build a new skyscraper and you're trying to market it in the middle of this, I mean, you'd be anxious, too.
3: Actually, Devin, one of the things, let's just stay on the Chrysler building here for a second, because one of the most interesting things I learned about the Chrysler building is that while he owns the building, he doesn't actually own the land the building is built on. And those payments are are actually only going to go up. Um, Talk to us about that dynamic, because also who he has to pay is an interesting side story, too.
4: Yeah, I mean it's it's not a totally un you know uncommon thing in, in in New York real estate for I guess you you buy in effect you know a building or basically you buy a leasehold or a long term leasehold in the building but then you have to pay you you know you know you the quote unquote building owner you have to pay rent to somebody who owns the ground underneath and in this case uh, you know Rosen and his, you know and his partner Signa uh, Group from Austria they have to pay 32 million dollars a year to Cooper Union. Uh, you, you know, you know, you know, a, a, you know, a college that that's basically they got into financial trouble a couple of years ago. They started charging tuition. The, the, you know, they, they'd been found, they were founded. They'd been founded. Uh, you know, the, you know, in the 19th century, you know, to offer free free education to you know working class kids. Well, they're trying to get back to to charge to not charging tuition. They're counting on that money. They're counting that 32 million dollars a year from the Chrysler Building, and it goes up to 41. In a couple of years, so, so that, that's a big nut to cover every year, and that's sort of a big challenge for AB. Uh,
3: Devin, can we also just talk about some of the zingers in the story? Because he had a, <laughs> he had some stuff to say. Um, let's start with De Blasio. Yeah,
4: well, that, well that's why that's why he, he's he's so great, uh, you know, or such, such a great you know lens to to look at this author. Well, he's it's interesting because because in September, you know, more than 160 business leaders. Wrote a letter basically criticizing De Blasio, or sort of pleading with him to do something about you know rising crime and trash on the streets and, you know, and things like that. Well, Rosen di- didn't sign didn't sign the letter because he's friends with De Blasio and he talks to him a lot and talks to him about city policies. So, but so basically, but he, he's really disappointed with him. He he says this is what I tell De Blasio and I tell I tell him I'm disappointed with what he's done or not done with school reopenings. And basically, he said de Blasio sort of sits around and says, oh, A.B., you know, what can I do? No matter what I do, it's negative, and, you know, I can't make a decision, and Rosen said, he's done. He's checked out. Wow. So, I mean, is the
1: expectation real quickly, Does do you think that A.B. thinks things are going to get better, come back to normal, will New York come back?
4: Well, I think he thinks long-term they will. Okay. I, 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 th- I, think, I think he thinks that, that next year there's going to be a new mayor and that, you know, you know that should be an improvement right there. But he was also talking about, you know, Joe Biden's going to win and he's going to get all this money for for New York. And we we now know, well, you know, if the if the Senate stays in public Republican hands, excuse me, that's that may not happen. So so, yep. so you have that. There's the uncertainty about who the next mayor is, and and then you have you know the the you know budget deficits and things yep. like that. So you know it, it's you know this. I think everybody thinks New York will come back. The yep. question is when. When. When Exactly right.
1: Joel Weber, thank you so much for joining us and bringing us this story editor for Bloomberg Business Week on the remote from Brooklyn. And Devin, fantastic reporting on this story. We really appreciate it. Really rich story. Products, projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg Business Week on the phone from New York City. Uh, Devin's story is featured in the new issue of Business Week magazine available on all newsstands and at Bloomberg Dot com. And for those of you listening in New York, D.C., and San Francisco and watching on YouTube, Bloomberg Business Week continues. If you're listening on Bloomberg 106.1 in Boston, Bay State business is next. And, Lisa, this is that New York real estate issue. Uh, boy, you think about all that new construction that was gone up over the last uh, four, five, six years. you got to wonder yeah. how that's going to play out uh, going forward.
4: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Paul Sweeney alongside Lisa Bromitz. We're sitting in for Carol Masser today. And uh, the news of the day, as it has been for the last several weeks, is uh, what's going on in Washington in terms of fiscal stimulus that doesn't look right now that the uh, congressmen are are, are working well with each other in their sandbox. Let's get the latest. We do that with Laura Litvan, congressional reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Laura, there seems to be a snag every other day. Just when you think some momentum might be building for some type of even limited stimulus, politics seems to get in the way. What's the latest?
5: Well, I do think there ultimately will be a deal, but um, John Thune, who is the number two Republican leader, just told reporters that uh, this could stretch into Monday uh, before maybe something comes together and can get a vote in the Senate. They are wrestling over a number of issues, but a leading issue, probably the number one run, number one issue holding up the talks right now, is how to handle the Federal Reserve's um, emergency loan programs that were set up in the CARES Act, the Pandemic Relief Act that passed in March. Um, Republicans like Pat Toomey and Mike Crapo want to ensure that uh, those those programs can't be revived. You know, they, they say those were supposed to be temporary in nature. Democrats are balking, and the Biden transition team is weighed in. Democrats are saying that uh, it hurts the feds' ability to respond to future crises. Republicans are concerned that a lot of these monies could be used for state and local aid, which they have been bristling at. And they're trying to work that out, You know, soon just express some confidence that something can be worked out. But things are, could drag into the weekend and we have a potential government shutdown Uh, occurring if they can't just agree on a stopgap measure to buy them a little more time tonight.
0: Laura, why are we talking about this now at the 11th hour?
5: The Fed? Well, that's kind of how these things often work out. They do come down to the wire, but there have been some very strong feelings on both sides on um, some of these issues and a lot of the details. Um, You know, the state and local aid and the size of the package has been something that Republicans have pushed back against for months. Um, But, you know, these are really... They often do take these things right down to the wire. And then uh, you know there's a lot of com- confidence being expressed by leaders in both parties that a deal will come together. They're not going to leave town until they get one. And we actually do know the broad outlines of this this deal. It's going to be around $900 billion. It's expected to have $300 a week in enhanced unemployment benefits, uh, around $300 billion for the Paycheck Protection Program, which helps small businesses. Direct payments of around $600 billion for individuals and some funding for transportation, including airlines, for vaccine distribution, and for reopening schools. And really what they need to do is just agree on a few final things and get the language drafted and everyone agreeing to it and try to move that through in a few days.
1: Boy, being a congressional reporter, Laura, that's a tough beat to cover these folks all day, (laughs) every day. I don't know how you do it. Um, So, you know, it seems like the fiscal stimulus talks are kind of bearing the lead a little bit here, because we need to fund this government going forward. Give us just the metrics of what happens tonight, the weekend, are we gonna get a stopgap for a week or a day? What's that side of the equation?
5: Well, what they seem to be looking at is around two days, maybe a little longer. They have to see what people will agree to. And what they really need, the House would probably vote on something tonight, and the Senate would then take that and try to see if they can move it by unanimous consent. They need that because in the Senate, it always takes more time to move things. And there are some senators who are saying, I might not go along with this just because there's some things in the stimulus bill that I'm not sure I'm going to like. I want to know more detail about what it's going to look like first. So there's at least some possibility they won't pass the stopgap bill. But if they don't, there's some ability by the administration, if it's clear that something is coming soon behind it that will fix the problem, that they can um, delay any furloughs for a few days if the funding is seen as likely to pass in the near future.
0: So from a political perspective, I don't understand why Republicans wouldn't be trying to expedite this since a number of different surveys show it would help them in the Georgia election.
5: Well, the leaders at this point are trying to do that. And Mitch McConnell, in a call with um, other Republican senators this week, actually brought in the Georgia races and said that moving this along would be helpful. But what's happened is there are some lawmakers in both parties, and particularly we are seeing in the Republican side right now who are saying they they could hold up that stopgap bill um, over over these provisions that they want to see changed. On the uh, lending facilities, and another issue is uh, this is bipartisan. Uh, GOP Senator Josh Hawley and Independent Senator Bernie Sanders both want $1,200 in direct payments, and um, they're saying that they want to make sure there's at least a generous you know, direct payment, a check to people in the final deal, and they're saying they aren't ready to say they'll let that stopgap measure go through until they're sure of it.
1: Laura, are, are the folks in Congress, are they surprised that we're not hearing much, if at all, from the White House, what the president may want, what the president's willing to support?
5: Well, Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, has been at the table in these talks. And, you know, so there's some belief that Trump would sign it but I think we all know that there can always be surprises with President Trump at the last minute. He does want uh, direct payments. That's a big issue for him. They brought that in late into the talks. But Mnuchin and the leaders are looking at 600, you know, the $600 checks, and we haven't heard that Trump is objecting to that. And I, one thing I will tell you is that Hawley himself spoke directly with Trump within the last 24 hours. He told us about this. And he said the president did not bring it up that he was objecting to what's
0: going forward. Laura Litvan, thank you so much for being with us, a Bloomberg News congressional reporter. And it just is amazing how it always does come down to the wire. But we've been to other wires, Paul. That's the thing. This isn't the first wire. We've had other wires, just that this wire is actually going to trip something major, which is a government shutdown. So it seems a little bit more realistic. But still, this has been dragging out.
1: It has been. And I I like your question about the Fed. What shocked, I guess, surprised me is, I hadn't heard this about the Fed until exactly. today, I think. You know, you know, maybe I wasn't paying attention, but it's kind of my job to pay attention to this stuff. But it just <laughs> seems like a fundamental issue to I come know. out. It's not like we've been debating this for weeks. It just seems like another way to trip up the talks here exactly. for whatever political gain may or- be you know that's why it's tough down there in Washington and you know folks like Laura Lit- Litvan have been covering Congress for a long time they're so valuable to us because uh, they kind of know how things work down there so but
0: but uh, yeah but it's if it's just curious to me because the main issues were state and local funding and liability yep. with respect to COVID right and now we're talking about the powers of the Federal Reserve you just wonder what other aspects are going to come out of the woodwork as we head toward the last minute here I'm in my car.
4: This is The Drive to the Close. That punky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: Welcome back, everybody. We are heading toward the market close here in about 10 minutes time. We have green, red and green across the, sc- uh, the screen here. It's basically a churn. It's been a churn all day. NASDAQ eking out about a half a percent of gains, the S&P down just about uh, two tenths of a percent. The question is, how much are people reassessing the momentum bets? How much are people reassessing the incredible gains that we've seen so far this month and this week? And just basically uh, not doing much with that. Joining at us right now is Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer at Wilmington Trust. And uh, Tony, I'd love your sense. Do you think that momentum has gotten over its skis at this point?
6: Hey, Lisa, thanks for having me. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we're seeing a little bit of nervousness around the stimulus, uh, You know, the, the protracted stimulus negotiation or discussion, if you will. There's been, It seems like every day the market's been up expecting a stimulus package, yet it never seems to arrive.
0: Right. So everyone's waiting for the stimulus package, and right now we're dealing with a situation where they're yet again hamstrung there, and yet people are banking on stimulus, and that's baked into the valuations. How do you square that as an investor heading into year-end?
6: Well, it's a great question. We just released our capital market forecast, which is, of course, our outlook for next year. And we made a lot of changes to portfolios this week in order to reflect that outlook. And so specifically, we added to emerging markets where we already had an overweight we added to small cap where we were neutral and we're now overweight. We also added to commodities to bring it up to neutral, and we added to tips from a severe underweight to a moderate underweight. So all across those trades, we've added to beta in the portfolios because when we look at the outlook, we know we're going to get this stimulus package. We don't know if it's going to be today, over the weekend, next week, maybe possibly not till early next year, but I would doubt it would take that long. And when you combine that with the fact that these vaccines are arriving, vaccinations are occurring, and you continue to have a Fed, which is extremely committed to accommodation, you're going to have a pretty good year next year, and there's tremendous pent-up demand in the economy.
0: All right. And I just want to clarify, I was uh, checking the wrong screen. I apologize. NASDAQ and s and both down about six-tenths of a percent. I'm wondering, though, is this a kind of dip that you buy, or is this basically uh, nothing in particular, and you just kind of hold what you've been holding into next year?
6: Well, it's not much of a dip yet, right? We're Pretty close to those all-time highs. Having said that, we may not get a huge dip before we race forward next year. So on the extreme margin, anytime the market goes down um, by even a percent, it's a buying opportunity if you're not fully invested relative to your long-term plan. So, Tony, I'm fascinated by your EM
1: call because we've had a lot of cross-currents on emerging markets. Uh, is, is this What's driving your call and kind of where do you see uh, the best opportunities in emerging markets?
6: So, yeah, Paul, a couple of things. First thing is that if you think about the changes wrought through COVID, the signal impact that is going to be singular when we look forward um, or when we look back at this period from um, the future is going to be the acceleration of digital, the digitization of the consumer. And when we look at the EM, what you see is a tremendous supply-side set up for the EM to supply infrastructure, semiconductors, cloud, all those kinds of things for digitization of our society. And from a supply side, they're frankly ahead in Southeast Asia of the rest of the world when it, com- when it comes to cashless society, telehealth, um, contactless payment, all those kinds of things. So as the world becomes more and more digital, um, EM set up for that. And then the second thing, of course, is that they're a lot cheaper, relatively speaking, from a historical perspective than the developed equity markets are. And then maybe a third order factor is the weakening dollar, which helps all non-U.S. equities. So there's quite a, a number of things that are lining up here to suggest EM is the place to be.
0: So I guess I'm looking at this and I'm thinking everyone has been coming out with a similar kind of call, this feeling of continue with momentum, emerging markets over the U.S., Europe over the U.S., although that's a more controversial call. Does it concern you that there is a degree of groupthink that, according
6: to some measures, is the most in years? Well, I guess it won't always have to be worried about that. I mean, I think that when I think, least about the groupthink right now, it's just this general optimism. Um, I think sentiment is incredibly strong now for all equities. So that does concern me. But when you look at valuations and you consider where rates are, as high as valuations are, we're nowhere near as where we were during the, the bubbles of the late 90s and such. And so I think that with rates this low and the Fed committed to keeping rates low at least for another 18 months or so, I know they're saying 2023, but let's face it, no one really knows where we're going to be after 18 months. That's a pretty far window. I think that there's justification for for this um, enthusiasm in in markets. And again, these vaccines are game changing. And by our estimate, there's probably a trillion and a half dollars of of pinup savings that are waiting to spill out into the surface side of the economy next year. That is a a huge number. Yeah, you can put me in that camp. That's for sure. Tony,
1: how about the? vacation, right? Yeah, darn right, <laughs> exactly. How about a plane, um, Tony? Talk to us about the rotation trade here. You know, you know, out of maybe some of the tech growth, lightening up there a little bit on some of those big growth gainers, uh, and maybe putting some more capital into some of the cyclical names, maybe even smaller cap. Uh, how do you think about that?
6: Yeah, I think it, I think that you need to be balanced, and I do I do think you can't ignore. The cyclical slash value trade that's happening right now, small caps racing ahead. We just moved to an overweight on small cap. I do think that we're going to continue to see a catch up from those cheaper, junkier names in both large cap and just more broadly in small cap. And so, when you think about areas like energy, um, infrastructure, um, areas of healthcare, materials, even financials, I think over the next six months we're going to continue to see. Hard rotations, hard rotations into those areas. But that doesn't mean that you take it necessarily out of the big cap tech names. There's four or five names, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, um, Google, arguably Facebook, maybe, maybe not, depending on what happens there with the antitrust overhang. Those platforms are going to be the venues upon which the consumer is digitized going forward. Virtual reality, alternative reality, it's just going to go on and on with those platforms. So You can't afford to take those platforms out of your portfolio.
0: Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer at Wilmington Trust with $124 billion under management. Joining us on the phone from Philadelphia, Paul, I got to say, the Russell 2000. Up 28% (laughs) since the end of October alone. I know. That is the trade.
1: Yeah, it really is the trade. We've seen that rotation play. You really start in September uh, and then just gain a tremendous amount of momentum. And it's, you know, again, don't fight the Fed, Lisa. And Chairman Powell has been very... Uh, clear as to what he uh, views the rate environment going through at least twenty twenty
0: three. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at bloomberg dot com, and be sure to check out our daily radio show at two p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, and be sure to watch us too on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.